Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. We all have stories to tell. It's usually about something that happened to us, something that created a shift inside, something that changed us forever. Today's story is about a loving family and a loss that lingered for decades and decades. And they didn't talk about it a lot, it just kind of hung in the air over days and nights and into years. Until the day the woman you were about to meet discovered a file cabinet filled to the brim with letters and documents all collected by her mother. It was on that day, on the floor of her now dead mom's closet, that the woman you were about to meet decided to reopen that wound with a new set of eyes and see what she could find. And it has been quite a ride. Her book chronicles that story, and it's called What We Inherit. Her name is Jessica Pierce Rotondi, and this is her story. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Candy. So your grandpa, Ed, let's go back to him. He fought in World War II, shot down over Germany. He became a prisoner of war. So maybe you could tell us that first part of the story. So I grew up hearing the stories of my grandfather's heroism in World War II. He was a B-17 bomber that was carrying the bomb site for all the other Allied planes on a day called Black Thursday, which is one of the biggest air raids in history. He parachuted out of a burning plane without ever getting parachute training, landed a little bit poorly, but was luckily saved by German farmers who didn't shoot him, but brought him over to Stalag 17 for two and a half years. He spent the first half of his 20s behind bars, not knowing if he would be free or not. And my mother kept everything from his prison ID photo to his prison spoon. So there's very tactile reminders of these early years of his life, but it deeply informed how he raised his children and who his family became. Uh, three of his five children went into the military, one Marines, one Air Force, and one Army. And it really, I think, shaped the narrative of what this country is and what the military can mean for them. You know, I, I wanted to share with you that my father fought in World War II. He served three tours of duty. And he enlisted when he was only 18 years old. And in my kitchen, up on a shelf where everyone can see it, I have my father's World War II helmet. And in the center of the helmet, right where his forehead would be, he was shot, retreating. I can't remember exactly where. And the bullet ricocheted off the road into his helmet. It spun around his helmet and came out the same hole. Oh, my God. And the reason why I mentioned my father's story is because he could have stood on a line and told his story and gotten some kind of a medal. And he always used to say to us at Sunday dinner, that's not why we go to war. We go to Mm. war to fight a war. We go to war to do what's right. I'm not going to stand in line. I feel like your grandfather, my dad, were both part of what they call the greatest generation. Talk to me a little bit about your grandfather's personality. Yeah, I mean, there's just the sense that everyone that he knew, everyone he went to high school with, his entire childhood friend group ended up going to Europe. They were all small town people in coal mining Pennsylvania. A lot of them had never left home before. And here he was flying from France over Germany, um, you know, seeing Italy, being imprisoned in Austria. This was something that you know, a generation ago, his family had never left uh, really town. So I think it just shifted so much about what he was able to understand about the world and the possibilities in it, but also what it means to lose someone. I mean, having five children in the space of just as many years about when he came home, I think he was so dedicated to his daughter and his four sons just because 
backing up even before the war, he had actually lost his brother to a drowning accident. So in a, a weird twist of fate, every generation of my family has lost a child. Let's talk about your uncle, Uncle Jack. So this would be Grandpa Ed's son. All of his mm-hmm. boys, you said, went off into the military, including Jack. He went off to fight in Vietnam. Tell us about that. Jack was the firstborn son and namesake. He was born a year after my grandparents got married. And he grew up with the stories of his father's heroism in World War II. He really wanted to be a bomber, just like his dad. But by the time he was old enough to sign up, America was embroiled in Vietnam, a very different conflict. Uh, He still joined the Air Force. He originally was on helicopter duty. But when he was switched to the 16th Special Operations Squadron, he was given a whole new role. And that was being part of an AC-130 bomber, which is a giant gunship. And they were flying not over Vietnam, but over a neutral country called Laos, which the United States would eventually bomb more than any other country in the entire world. My uncle not only did one tour of duty, he did two. He volunteered to go back when he came home. He was just a changed person and could not imagine his brothers, as he called them, fighting and him not being there. On his second tour of duty, he went back. He was actually not supposed to be on the plane the night he disappeared but he switched with another gentleman last minute, and that's the last time he was ever seen alive. He was shot down by a Russian surface-to-air missile around 2 a.m. in the cover of night over Laos. And then from that point on, there are 13 different CIA-classified reports about what happened to the crew, many of them contradictory. And I think that informed the 36-year struggle my family had to get to the truth about what really happened that night. Your grandparents and your mother then, for 36 years, they begin a lifelong search for Jack. They look for answers from the government, and they get nothing, and sometimes they got lies, which breaks your heart. My family is and was so patriotic, and my grandfather marched in every Memorial Day parade. He actually got the first prisoner of war license plate in Pennsylvania. It said POW on the back. It was such a defining part of his narrative and his identity, but then... When his son was shot down and the government lied to him, they came to his front door, a pastor and someone in the Air Force, and they said, your son was shot down over Vietnam. And my grandfather looked at the man and he said, my son wasn't in Vietnam. I know he was in Thailand and over Laos. You better start telling me the truth. So from the very minute that he was notified his son was missing, they were trying to cover up where. And once he let them know he knew more than they thought he did, it really just became, over the years, increasingly not just a fight for answers, but a fight against the own government he was sworn to protect and almost gave his life for. It was such a huge betrayal for my grandfather. And what kept him up at night, more than the PTSD, more than the dreams of that imprisonment, which were still very much a part of his day-to-day and nightly life, it was just this sense that everything he believed in wasn't true. He pulled all of his other sons out of the military. My grandmother wrote this incredible note and pencil bearing down so hard she ripped through the paper, you will never get one of my sons back again. And just watching them go from, you know, small town parents of five. My Nana worked at a grocery store. My grandpa was a Pennsylvania state trooper. Neither one of them went to college. They went on for the next four decades to really become advocates for all of the missing, rising fairly prominently into the National League of Families organization that was dedicated to bringing the missing men home. And speaking on stages to governors, to senators, to anyone who would listen. And it just completely altered the course of their lives and their their sense of mission. Let's talk a little bit about you, Jessica. As you were growing up, did you know any of these details or did you just hear pieces of it? There's a line in your book that says, the Pierce family doesn't talk about death very much. Tell me what your experience was with this incredible load, this burden. 
after my mother died, I was 23 years old. And that's when I, as you mentioned earlier, discovered all these documents about the brother she never talked about. I looked at the paperwork. Mom lost Jack at the same age I lost her. Of course, she didn't want to talk about it with me. I think so much of her life was built around protecting her daughters from what she went through. My grandfather even admits in newspaper articles, I have four other children, but something in me, I just can't stop looking for Jack. Every single weekend, they were marching on Washington or driving to Texas. They were just doing all this advocacy work while all these other milestones were going on. And I think the wildest part for me of researching this story was looking at the timeline of the war versus what was happening in my family. My mother got married a month after her brother was officially declared dead by the government. So my grandfather had driven to Texas overnight to advocate for his son, lost the case, and then a month later watched his daughter walk down the aisle. My mother had delayed the wedding multiple times so her brother could be a groomsman escorting her down the aisle. Obviously that didn't happen. I was just married last year and I miss my mother so much. You know, knowing what I know now about her loss, watching that wedding video, seeing those photos, you can see her looking for the one person that's not there. And she made a conscious choice when she was raising my sister and I to protect us as much as she could from that loss. But of course, when she got cancer herself, it kind of became this weird nightmare scenario where all the losses that she went through then became ours again. And even when she was sick, she didn't talk about death. She didn't talk about dying. She continued to dwell in hope. And I think that was something she very much drew upon her father's example and strength to emulate for her children, for better or for worse. Can you tell us a little bit about your mom and her personality? You told me that she was fiercely protecting you and your sister. But just tell us a little bit about, about you know, what she looked like and what was, what was her demeanor so we can kind of get inside her a little. She was about five foot seven, bright blue eyes. Um, her hair started to go white and gray fairly young, but it looked like this white blonde. So she just kind of rocked it and always had it just beautifully styled. She was always in some kind of power blazer. She just was so involved in our community from the time I was a little kid. She would be on the PTA. She'd be driving us everywhere. I actually had a book club this weekend with some women in my, my hometown. And one woman told me, I don't know if you know this, but when my husband was dying of cancer, long before your mom got sick, she dropped off meals to our home. She cooked for us. And, uh, that's all. I, I only saw her in those moments, but I remember that so clearly. So she was just such a part of her community to the point that when she got sick, she did not ask for help, but she had four churches in our small town, all delivering food for her, taking care of her, checking in on her. And for her funeral, we had to extend it by two hours because people were just coming into the receiving line to pay their respects. Before she died, she kept this incredible journal that was very funny and very light and talking about what pajamas she'd wear for the Oscars or the Emmys that night during her chemo treatments, or, you know, she had a doctor named Dr. Payne that she liked to kind of <laughs> highlight the irony of his naming. <laughs> the way she handled her cancer was she wanted to make it something that she could not share the pain of with her daughters. I, I wish she had done more of that, but she wanted to show us that death wasn't so scary and that it was something that anyone can do. And my sister and I were in the room when she passed and she fought very hard. It took two days. She just wouldn't give up. That kind of, I think, encapsulates the way she died is the way she lived. And one of the last things she was able to do was to get answers for her family about her brother, Jack. So even though she was so sick herself, I don't want to give too much away, but when the Air Force called her, she was already in her experimental treatments at Dana-Farber down in Boston. And she gave all of herself to bring closure to her family, even when she herself was not well. You say in your book, going to Laos wouldn't bring Jack or my mom back, but I feel closer to them when I lose myself in their papers. That's love, Jessica. Talk about that. 
when my mom passed, I was just desperate for any kind of message from her. I mean, the woman wrote thank you notes for thank you notes. She wrote marginalian cookbooks about oven temperature. She was so thorough in every aspect of her life. And while I didn't find any letters about what she wanted me to do, what I did find were thousands of pages that gave me the chance to meet her at my age. Her loss became my loss. The letters were like a roadmap through grief. She never meant to leave me. I was close to her. I talked to her every single night on the phone, especially when she was sick. But the fact that we never, ever talked about her brother, I think that tells me how deeply broken she was over it. But it also presented with me a, a chance to heal and a chance at a do-over rather than letting this secret kind of simmer, getting to the bottom of it. Traveling to Laos in 2013, 40 years after my grandfather went there, I went to a place my mother had circled on maps for decades but never seen. And going to that jungle, the last known place her brother was seen alive, brought me incredible closure that I don't think I could have found in any place on this earth, but that one place my mother dreamed of going but wasn't able to in her lifetime. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Almazian, president of Tech Help Boston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. JC Valeris at Platinum Circle Media who handles our social media marketing, and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. What is the moral of the story, what we inherit? To love the people that you love. I, my, my uncle went into the Air Force dreaming of being like his father and reliving that life. I became an editor like my mother always wanted to be, moving to New York, having this journalist life. But I think neither thing really made us happy. What gave me closure was knowing when to let go. My grandfather had high blood pressure, had a stroke, like all the stress and the anxiety of fighting for his son all those years took him away from his family. My mother, in advocating for so many years, was the only daughter to leave town. The rest of her siblings all stayed in small town Pennsylvania. She moved to Massachusetts, I think largely to escape the past, but the past followed her there anyway. And I think the thing we need to remember about family is we can love them, know where we come from, be so proud of that, but also know when to forge our own path. Because as a parent, what you really want is for your children to be happy and find their own way. And sometimes that means not becoming their parents, but honoring them by becoming themselves. We're talking to Jessica Pierce Rotondi, and the name of the book is What We Inherit. And if you want to find out what the Air Force said when they called her mom on that day, I want you to go out and buy that book, because we don't want to tell all the details of how the story ends and how it unfolds along the way. In your opinion, Jessica, as a journalist, as an editor, what your mom had always hoped you would be, what makes for a great story? I think a great story is a combination of something that takes you to a place you've never been before and gives you a new perspective, and one that's also told in a way that makes sense. For this book, talking about my uncle who was a soldier, I didn't want you to just see him as the man that was bombing Laos. I didn't want you to see him as 
a missing person. I want you to see him as a human being. I talked to this woman who had a crush on him when he was a little boy and they kind of grew up together as teenagers. I wanted you to see that part of his humanity alongside his later years when alcoholism and the stresses of war really altered and shaped his life. We talk about three generations of one American family over the course of 40 years in this book. And I felt such a responsibility to not just tell you historical moments, um, which I, I was also careful to do. I talked to CIA officers and veterans and refugees for this book, but also to make every single person, no matter what side they were on, depicted in a full and human way, which I think the best books do. Anytime that history becomes personal is when it becomes real. And my goal with this book was to not only tell my family's story, but to tell the story of a war at large, a war that left Laos the most heavily bombed country in the world. If there's another family searching for a loved one, what advice can you offer? And what do you wish you knew when you first got started? The magic of working on this book was really connecting with other families. There were 13 other boys that were lost um, when that plane went down. And all the other families were talking to my grandmother and my mother for years. And so I got to reconnect with them through this book to talk to them. Many of their stories are also contained in what we inherit. The Simmons family, they, like our family, had basically this war room in their childhood home that became the command center in their search for their son, Skeeter. And it can be an incredibly lonely road, I think, especially with Vietnam. America was so ready to stop talking about it and move on with their lives. Normalization with the country happened quickly, detente with Russia, and the world was moving on, and my grandparents couldn't let go, and they felt so isolated and so frustrated. But I think if they had found even more people like them searching for answers, I, I think there would have been that sense of, of sanity. And I, there are a couple organizations today, the National League of Families is one of them, where you can meet with people just like you looking for answers and not feel crazy or angry or obsessive, but feel human and, and feel like you can not only grieve your child when there's no grave, when there's no closure, but really get closer to answers. Uh, they have a lot more access to the CIA, to government agencies, and they were a channel that might help my grandparents immensely and ended up being a huge part of my research as well. The mother-daughter connection is so powerful. You wanted to do this for your mother. And in fact, the book is dedicated to her. Jessica, one of the questions that I always ask women who are moms is, what is mother love? And I know you're newly married, you don't have children yet, but what I'd like to ask you is, what is daughter love? When I started writing this book, I was in my early 20s, I was wild with grief for my mother there. Even going to Laos and doing a lot of the dangerous things I did, I, I think in the back of my head, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me has happened to me. Nothing could hurt me like losing her hurt me. And I think the more I learned about what my mother went through, the more I was able to love her, not just as a, as a mother, but as a human being. And I think daughter love, when you're young, I think a lot of us kind of worship our mothers, right? They're the people that we know to emulate womanhood. And I think when my mother got sick, especially with breast cancer, a disease that takes away so many of the things that make us female, that, you know, that gave you us life as, as their daughters. I watched her relationship to her body, to beauty change. A woman that was praised for being beautiful lost so much of her identifying features, but still laughed, still came to my graduation. She didn't make it to my sister's graduation. She had had her breast removed a month before. And I remember she was in such pain, but she sat there smiling and she wanted to make damn sure that she was there. And when my sister studied abroad in Germany, my mother initially went there. She had skipped her brain scan because I think she knew it was going to be bad because it had already spread to other places. But she walked all over cobblestoned Dresden, Germany, up and down the streets until she was forced into a wheelchair because she could no longer walk. She'd had her leg replaced with titanium rod uh, recently in another surgery. She wrote letters to the staff on the pillowcase apologizing for her hair falling out. But she 
went everywhere her daughter went because she wanted to see what her life was like and know that she was going to be okay. She died a few months after that when the brain cancer um, took over too. But I think for me, it was not only seeing my mother as a strong bastion of fighting cancer, it was seeing her when she was scared and weak and a daughter. The more I, I worked on this project over those 10 years, I think the less closely I associated with that pure daughter grief and the more I actually associated with my grandfather looking for his son. Um, and in the book, you know, there's the countdown, right? So every chapter that starts with me losing mom and then going to Laos, I list how many weeks, days mom has been missing. And for my grandfather, I list how many weeks and days Jack has been gone. That countdown, I think, never fully leaves you as a daughter. I'm always going to think I'm going to wake up one day and be older than she ever was, right? I'm going to have children that will never get to meet her. But I hope through this book and through the story of all that she did, marching on Washington, fighting for her brother, even taking her last breath to give to her brother and to her daughters, I, I want them to know who she was. And I hope through this book that they will know. Next question. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I think I tend to write my way through a lot of things. I was a very shy kid growing up. I wasn't the most vocal. I've always found that in the writing, I'll always know, even if I don't consciously know it, what I actually need to do going forward. And sometimes that's writing, putting it away and coming back to it. But that's definitely been my secret weapon throughout the years, especially without a mother to call. I think she was such uh, my sounding board for so many years. And when that sounding board goes quiet, you really have to find it within yourself. And sometimes when I'm writing, it's almost like I can still write to her and have that voice in my head that will never leave. And that's her. Jessica, right now, from where you sit, what does success mean to you? I think that's changed so much even day by day. I mean, this book came out during a global pandemic. It shakes your worldview. I think every generation of my family, it's World War II, it's Vietnam, it's cancer. Those are incredibly difficult things that took away so much from us, but they also gave a perspective that is maybe a useful reminder that success doesn't have to be this outward facing thing. It can be an inward piece as well. And I think success for me now, it is knowing that the external accolades or measures of success don't necessarily make you happy. My God, they can even leave you feeling more empty. It really is um, having the support network within yourself and within the family that I'm building and I hope others are building too, to feel safe and loved. I think at the core of every single day, if I wake up and feel, do I feel safe? Do I feel loved? That's um, something a mother would give a daughter and something that a daughter can give herself. The name of the book is What We Inherit. A Secret War and a Family Search for Answers. Jessica Pierce Rotundi, thank you so much for being our guest on the story behind her success. Thank you, Candy. This was incredible. I'm so grateful. Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?